Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Sergio Perez. Sergio holds a degree in psychology from Trinity College Dublin and has recently finished a master's in applied social research also from Trinity College Dublin. He's worked in the area of mental health and has conducted research in the field of psychology of religion, more specifically into religious deconversion, which is the focus of our chat today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sergio, so excited to be here today to chat. Thank you for having me. So I first came across your work through the Secularism and Non-Religion Journal, the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network. And Mm -hmm. you had published a paper on how religious people become atheists. And so, you know, I think I hadn't come across the term deconversion before I started like going a little bit deeper into, you know, psychology of religion and, and, and reading a little bit about that. So for folks, you know, I think most people have heard of conversion, but for folks who are unfamiliar, what, what is deconversion and what are some of the kind of research contexts within which you uh, you undertook your study? So deconversion can be understood, I guess, in uh, simple lay terms as uh, abandoning your religious beliefs and acquiring a non-religious identity. Um, now, it has been defined differently by different researchers. Some have maybe taken a more broader approach where they take the conversion as many different changes in your religious identity. So some people will argue, well, you know, if you, let's say you were a, a Christian and you, you know, stopped believing in the Christian uh, you know, dogma or beliefs, and then you start you know, you get into uh, Islam and you become a Muslim, well, that's also the conversion. Or some people will say, if you abandon the institutionalized aspect of religion, uh, but you keep, you know, your your religious beliefs or your spiritual practice uh, at a private level, that's still the conversion. I will argue that, or the way I understand the conversion is kind of more sort of from one end to belief to non-belief. So, you know, you were a believer, whatever your beliefs were, and then you just shred those beliefs and you identify as, as an atheist or maybe as an agnostic. But, you know, that would be the, the definition that I have opted. And, and other people will have will argue as well that that maybe is a better definition, maybe because it kind of keeps things a little bit more clear. But yeah, it's, it's not, let's say it's not a, I, I started saying that it was a kind of a simple concept, but actually it is, some people have defined it, you know, differently, but that's how the, the way I view it and the way I worked with it. Right, right. And and as a concept, it's relatively recent, right? Like from what I understand, a lot of the major studies on it have been in the last decade or two. Is that right? Yes, yes. So there has been a lot of interest in, in psychology of, of religion, obviously, and I mean that that kind of goes back to you know the beginning of the 20th century with you know uh, William James, for instance. But you know then it kind of it was not such a popular topic. Then in the last 30 years, let's say uh, it really picked up again. However, you know uh, research on deconversion, particularly, has not really uh, featured much. Um, it, it's been more about you know, maybe the relationship between religious beliefs and, and other aspects of 
like well-being, for instance, and things like that. But uh, yeah, not much of a, you know, there has been a few studies though, and, and you can sort of see a, a thread. So there is something there, but it's not the, the most researched topic. Right, right. And, um, you know, you mentioned that there are these kind of multiple ways of viewing it, you know, it seems like, or some other researchers have described it as, even like a smaller shift maybe within a tradition, whether it goes from, you know, organized kind of institutionalized religious life to private kind of spiritual practice. Why do you think it's important to to separate it out in terms of the, you know, from one pulse to the other? And yeah, how does it kind of interplay with some of the research that's already been done or some of the way the other, other researchers are talking about it in terms of like looking from conversion from one faith to another or, you know, looking at folks who are, Maybe only going part way of the way towards uh, towards non belief. Yeah. Well, um, what comes to mind maybe is um, there is research carried by his name is uh, Strabe, and they have done a kind of a longitudinal research with people from the U.S. and also from Germany, so trying to compare, you know, both like different cultures, and they speak more about you know migrations in the religious field and how there are different exits you know the you know so you have as i was saying before maybe this religious switching or this kind of private as in uh, religiosity and then there is maybe this secular exit which i will think maybe is more kind of strictly let's say the conversion so yeah, it's kind of an interesting research. Uh, they they do apply a little bit of a different spin on it because, for instance, they have used um, something they call the faith development interviews, and they have kind of compared how faith develops in people who have deconverted, whatever the way they have deconverted, and how that compared with in tradition members, so people who are still religious. Uh, they argue, for instance, that. People who have deconverted have higher stage of religious, sorry, of faith development because it's more, uh, it's, it's a stage of faith where is what is more reflective and it, rather than more kind of uh, traditional or dogmatic. Now, maybe there is a little bit of a contradiction or, or kind of an irony there because, you know, as I pointed out in, in my paper is, well, how, you know, being an atheist, you define yourself as an atheist by not believing certain things. So how is it that people who have deconverted, at least in the kind of in, to the secular way, how can they have a higher stage of, of you know faith development? But this is down to how the whole concept is defined, which is defined in a very broad way, and also you know is. is it has borrowed a lot of elements from theology, really. So, you know, some people will kind of, you know, go into that direction. I was trying to maybe go into the strict case of, you know, belief to non-belief. Yeah. Right. Well, it's it's interesting. I know there is this kind of framework of like Fowler's stages of faith development mm. that I know I was introduced to in the class a couple of years ago. And I know there's some like criticism of the stages of faith development as, um, you know, really putting kind of an explicit value judgment maybe on folks that may not be there and also really kind of hierarchically or ordering, you know, judgment and I, hierarchically ordering folks based on kind of some type of growth. Yeah. And, and, and there has been also a, a criticism from both sides. I mean, not only from, you know, kind of those who approach the topic from maybe a more secular point of view, as I will do, but also from uh, 
you know, maybe some theological thing angle saying that, well, you know, really like for a Christian, let's say faith is, is really something else, you know, it has really, it is related with the grace of God and et cetera. So, you know, if you understand faith in such a encompassing way, then you sort of miss the point in, in, a, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but really interesting as well to think that, you know, it almost is brings to question the sense of like four stages of faith development, you know, what does it mean to say someone who maybe kind of has a secular exit, if you will, to be at a higher stages of faith development? It almost seems like worldview development or it kind of, it seems like it's trying to say something about how one relates to one's ideology and whether it's coming from kind of external or kind of rigid structures versus a kind of like internal um, exploration. But, but it seems like just the word, you know, still kind of situating that in the Christian or the explicitly religious context of faith development um, mm. brings this kind of interesting irony or, or paradox to, to, to applying that to the secular folks. Yeah. 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 And I think like, you know, what it comes down to maybe is that's kind of maybe a, an instance of a symptom of another phenomena, you know, at a more broader level in, in, in psychology and so, on sociology of religion, which is that sometimes, you know, you, you take, the most fundamental things of the of the human condition and, and the search for meaning that you know many others have you know talked about, and maybe they translate that into ultimate uh, ultimate concerns, which again is, is is a concept I think by Tillich, a, a theologian. So you know by taking that sort of very deep you know fundamental human need and label it as well religious or spiritual, then they kind of then these things happen when you have someone who maybe have uh, changed their beliefs, but because they still have obviously some, you know, uh, reflections on, on, on their conditions and, and they are still searching for meaning, etc. They are still labeled as, well, they're religious because of, but, you know, that's, that's come, as I mentioned in, in the paper, I think is a little bit like, you know, mistaking the need with the, one of the means by which, that need is satisfied, you know, it's like one mistaking the hunger with one type of food. So I think it's important to have that eagle view kind of perspective where you recognize what's going on is that, you know, people search meaning and one way to uh, address that is religiosity, but also there are secular ways to do it. Right. I mean, it, it kind of begs the question, like, I think, you know, I, I don't know if it would be explicitly calling folks who are searching for meaning religious because they're asking these questions, but I, I've definitely heard of this stuff described as like they're grappling with religious questions, right? And, you know, and the question is like, well, are they gra- like, why is that the term we use? Right? Well, are they grappling with philosophical questions, mm-hmm. psychological mm-hmm. questions, existential questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a very, very important point and and uh, it's not reflected enough. You know, I have found some very interesting, you know, arguments uh, about it. You know, uh, I, back in the 70s already, that there is this sociologist called uh, Campbell who was basically saying that in sociology, irreligion is kind of defined out of existence almost. So it's kind of, you cannot be religious, you know, because, by the, because they use a functional definition uh, of what religiosity or spirituality is. So they focus on what it does for people, not what it is or what are the fundamental characteristics. So, you know, if your job is, 
you know, really important for you and is uh, and, and it fills you with meaning, then, you know, okay, then you can apply that that veneer of religiosity and say, well, you're then somehow religious. And it still happens today with other concepts with, uh, for instance, the concept of the sacred and how anything basically can be uh, sanctified or, or become sacred. And therefore, well, if you are in the search for the sacred, then you're somehow religious or spiritual. But maybe, you know, maybe my marriage is sacred or my job is sacred. doesn't mean that I'm religious or spiritual. And so... Well, it's so interesting because I've also seen it go the other way where I've seen folks who are maybe explicitly secular and, you know, by drawing this analogy to religiosity or metaphor, it kind of connects what they're doing to this broader human seeking of meaning, right? In a way that kind of adds a depth just by like kind of putting it in the same sentence as you know, a religion or a religious undertaking. You know, one of the other speakers of the conference talks about what does it mean to look at Virginia Woolf as like doing religious work, having done religious work. Virginia Woolf, the writer, who is a self-declared mm-hmm. atheist, but to look at the work as religious kind of brings almost a different like perspective maybe to how one looks at it or to how one approaches it. Yeah, and, and I think even, you know, those who, uh, I don't know if maybe this rings near to what you were thinking, but I mean, even, you know, uh, scientists will will uh, talk about spiritual sort of feelings of awe when, you know, they study the cosmos and, you know, Carl, Sag- Carl Sagan, you know, was actually using these words, you know. I, I guess, you know, it is a more uh, spiritual, sorry, it's a, it's a more kind of metaphorical way, um, you know. But, you know, spirituality is, I think, even more difficult to define than religion, you know. So, you know, if you, if you, if you thought religion was difficult, then spirituality is even more difficult, so. Yeah, an even fuzzier concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I wanna, I wanna make sure we get time to uh, we dive into into the actual the paper and the research. So, yeah, maybe just for folks who are kind of less familiar, can you talk more about what what was the kind of research question you came to with the the paper with or with the research with, and uh, kind of how did you come to the methodology that that you ended up choosing for the paper? So. The question is is basically how do religious people become atheists? And I was really interested in the whole, you know, process of kind of you know, changing your beliefs. Um, you know, like uh, b- before doing the project, I, I had you know read you know Richard Dawkins and seen you know uh, uh, debates and, and but you know it's it sort of. It was an interest, of, an interest of mine, and having read like you know philosophy and mythology and all of that, so I came across this website called uh, what well, is an organization called the Clergy Project, which uh, is in the U.S. And what they try to do is, well, they offer a, a forum for clergy who has abandoned their beliefs. So basically, there is a lot of mainly. People from the U.S., you know, pastors or ministers, they had put their testimonies there on how, you know, they came to abandon their their faith. So when I came across this, I I thought this is super interesting because you know these are people who have in, invested their lives, you know, and some people were maybe in their seventies. They have preached for, you know, twenty years, and they didn't know how to do anything else. I mean, that was obviously their profession. And, you know, it's quite a change. You know, there, there's a lot of stake 
So I use that and I use then some members of a local organization here in Ireland called Atheist Ireland. So I, I just put an ad and I got some people who also were raised uh, believers and, and, and they used to believe, but they, they, they abandoned their beliefs. And what I wanted to do is basically, well, I did interviews, so I have a lot of text and I took this uh, qualitative approach. Uh, the method is called grounded theory and uh, is kind of very well known in, in sociology and, and did a lot of good for sociology uh, in, I guess, giving a little bit more, a little bit, bit more of a rigor and legitimacy to qualitative research practices. So, you know, you kind of really dwell into the, the text and, and you try to, you know, find meanings and, and, and codes and then you sort of build everything up from the, from the bottom with different techniques so that then you come up with main themes or core categories that relate to each other and, and explain a, a process, basically. That's why I thought, you know, that methodology was really appropriate because it kind of focused on uh, processes of change. And, you know, this is basically that. So um, it's, it's hard to study this topic, obviously. Um, so if you're interested in the nuance of it, you kind of have to go that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so what did you find in some of these interviews with clergy or with just kind of lay folk who had left, uh, left belief? Well, so basically what I found was three main themes, let's say, or, or, or core categories that influence people in how they are bound on their beliefs. Not everyone maybe presented these three at the same time. You know, they, they maybe presented uh, different levels. They were very much interrelated as well, but you could still see these three topics being identified. So one will be what I would say reason and an inquire. And it had to do with all sort of the the thinking behind it, all the questions, the doubts. I mean a lot of people from the clergy project and as well as the interviewees, you know, they were filled with doubts and they were searching for answers that were beyond the maybe the the, the what they could get from their priest. Uh, you know, they needed answers that were satisfying a kind of a, a rational or logical level. Within that whole category also, there is a lot of, uh, you know, learning and, and reading different things, uh, kind of maybe uh, applying, uh, you know, more critical thinking to certain things. Um, then the second category will be... Sergio, can I actually, can I ask a <clears throat> question before yeah. jumping, or just about the first category? You know, it's interesting. I, I once took a, one of the professors I had in this course in psychology of religion was a uh, or an ordained priest who also had a PhD in psychology and a PhD in the philosophy wow. of science. So Amazing. fascinating guy, right? I mean, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but one of the things he, you know he said is like talking about like Dawkins and some of the new atheists and kind of like the reason kind of critique of religion is that you know they're really critiquing kind of what we see in the U.S. is this kind of like fundamentalist religious right in many ways, this kind of like fundamentalist literist belief in the Bible and that, you know, when he lived in, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, there were, you know, he would attend a service with like a Nobel Prize, you know, multiple Nobel Prize winning scientists in the audience who kind of found a way to reconcile in some ways the science and the reason with their faith. And um, I think that's 
easier or harder to do depending on the faith tradition that you're within and whether there's mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. the freedom to really um, meld some of the, 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 the these questions. So I'd be curious, you know, when you're talking to these kind of clergy, were they coming from primarily more of these kind of like fundamentalist or literalist sects? Um, or or, or did, was it kind of coming from across the spectrum and, and, you know, they just kind of decided at some point like they didn't want to do the, the emotional or psychological work of trying to reconcile and, and uh, you know, connect the, those two aspects? Well, they they were mostly, I'm sure, yeah, a few were more kind of in the near the fundamentalist maybe spe- spectrum or, or more of a rigid sort of Bible belt environment but you know there, there was a wide variety you know there were presbyterians methodists uh, you know baptists um but what was very striking is that you know these were people who actually have doubts and wanted to know more so you know they, they actually did the job of going deeper and deeper into you know the bible and the theological writings to sort of find answers to these doubts. So, like, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but 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 they kind of came out of, of that process as, you know, abandoning their, their beliefs. I mean, at, at some point, you know, these things, they didn't make any more sense. So what I mean is that they, they, the intention, the, the initial intention that they have was not to, mm, I don't really believe this. It was all the opposite. They were like, you know what? I mean, this is, this is what I believe. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure if I go deeper into this, I will, my faith will be strengthened. But some say, you know, what actually killed my belief was reading the Bible, <laughs> you know? So, but I do know what you mean. And, and, you know, I think it's, as you said, you know, some, de- depending on what is your belief, you might be, more or less able to reconcile these two worlds, you know. So the the, the second will be criticism and discontent, and this will be more sort of moral appraisals of religious beliefs and behaviors and institutions. And it will have a lot to do with, you know, the, the, maybe for instance, the position of the church uh, in, in regarding you know, abortion or LGTB rights, maybe the, the treatment of women. So a lot of things that maybe didn't sit well on people, as well as, you know, things coming from the dogma or, or beliefs themselves, like, you know, having the Bible as a moral guidance when obviously there are, it was written in a very different, you know, epoch and you will have passages that to our standards will be barbaric and, you know, well, how can you actually reconcile that or, or get a guidance from that? Or, you know, the, theologically speaking, the problem of evil, you know, why God will allow, you know, suffering, etc. So those things were really troubling for people. They, they, you know, the, these people wouldn't really let that go and, this is obviously connected with the previous topic, right? And and sort of kind of analyzing everything. So that's why the three things are very much uh, reinforcing, I guess, each other. And the last one will be, I, I will say personal, I name it personal development, but, you know, I mean, really it's a lot about um, sort of coming to terms with personal issues, uh, you know, uh, solving internal uh, conflicts, you know, going into sort of paths of exploration, you know, self-esteem, talking to different people, approaching new ideas. And what was interesting about this aspect is that it was something that for some people, you know, maybe they, they were grappling with some conflicts and once they were resolved, they were in a better position to say, you know what, actually, 
I don't need this belief now. You know, I, I just, you know, it doesn't make more sense for me. Uh, I think that last point or, or that last aspect is, is very important because, you know, we were both mentioning Richard Dawkins, for instance. And I think sometimes people like Dawkins tend to forget maybe the psychological side of all of this and, and the emotional need. It's not simply, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. Why don't you believe in that? Well, obviously there is, maybe some people are not ready to let go of certain things um, because of the, the functions, you know, that they beliefs have. So that, that will be the main thing. And this will be obviously a kind of a very gradual process and kind of a cumulative process, you know, in, in a context of, you know, your, your family, your expectations, you know, and, and the wider context of, of national identity that was very evident in Ireland, obviously, you know, being a, a country with just such a Catholic history. Well, and it's it's really interesting because, you know, mentioning Dawkins again, he's such an interesting character. And there's such like a wide variety of religiously unaffiliated folks these days, right? There's the mm-hmm. folks who, you know, um, like I think when I first heard the term that, you know, 40% of Americans are religious nuns or 20 or 45% of, 40% of millennials, 25% of Americans are religious nuns. I'm like, wow, there's just a lot of agnostic people, secular people. But it turns out like a lot of these people are maybe just private with their religious life. They're just religious and affiliated, but maybe the majority of them still believe in God and still pray every day, right? 50 plus percent, right? That's a very different kind of type of person than someone who is, you know, you know, agnostic or atheist, right? And I, I wonder as well whether there's like an important distinction between, you know, moving all the way to atheism versus agnosticism. Because like I know, you know, when I was reading, I think it was Dawkins' last book on, I forget, it was a big answer. I forget what, what, what it was, but it was, he was talking about, you know, basically secular cosmology, this idea of like, how did the universe come to be? Like using physics to kind of explore some of these questions that maybe traditionally have been explored through religion. And, um, you know, his answer was basically like, you know, because of quantum physics, we, we can see sometimes particles would just appear out of nowhere and they could disappear and it can kind of just random things can happen. And, you know, a tiny particle can then kind of lead to this larger expansion, this larger mm. kind of reaction. And so his belief is that the universe just spontaneously happened out of nothing and then kind of gradually mm. from the Big Bang kind of expanded into something greater, which is like an interesting, mm. you know, belief, but also doesn't to me sound any less crazy than the fact that there was like something that like, you know, started all of I mean, you know, like the timelines of like, you know, hundreds of years ago is one thing, but for like, you know, the, like that, there's a certain amount of belief without like belief beyond evidence that takes place even in kind of that like strong atheism because there are these questions that we just don't know the answer to, right? And so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on, on that. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, well, that's that's definitely a very interesting area. And um, I actually remember one day I was really asking, you know, myself this question, you know, how is it that, you know, which is probably the most fundamental question of all, like how is it that, a universe could have existed. Why does the universe exist, right? And nothing, you know? And um, I actually remember I went to the shop, to the bookshop, and I bought this book by uh, Lawrence Cross called A Universe from Nothing. And it's, you know, great book, you know, not too long. And, you know, he was explaining that not really nothing, uh, there are things going on there and and, and, and nothing is unstable. And, well, I, I don't remember, obviously, the, the specifics. I love that I will. But, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, science has all of these explanations and which, you know, they vary at 
to in the degree of confidence that 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 we have, depending on the evidence and and the arguments for it. But you know what I think is that um, the universe as it is is pretty you know amazing and crazy. So you know it is you know it is um, I, I think a, a common reaction to have you know when you say well you know how cool this be. I mean this is also kind of a sounds like a crazy theory and it does because i mean you know we, we it's, it's hard for us to grapple with the complexity of the universe and, and it's, it is an epistemological question of well how do we know what we know but but i think also with particularly with like if we ascribe to the big bang theory right the idea is that all like all matter in the universe originally came from the big bang right and mm. you know if what we're doing to try and understand the history of the universe is measuring matter because that's all we can do. We can all we can do is measure physical particles mm. in the universe, right? Well, then, if all the matter that we can physically observe came from the Big Bang, there's no way we can know what came before, right? Like we have no way of measuring things that were were not here, right? Yeah, it's uh, you know I, I love all of these topics, and you know I'm a big fan of like watching Cosmos and all of this, and I, I wish I had you know the capacity to understand this at a, at a very a more fundamental level, you know, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit like a piece of a puzzle that that you start putting together, and it's you know, there is certain things that we know, and a lot of things that we don't know, and, and things that we don't know that we uh, don't know. But also, I will add that there are a lot of things that we know, and that we know enough, but we often forget, and we forget the implications of all of that. And you know, a, a certain number of things that you know can rule out. Uh, a host of other possibilities. So, um, yeah, it's it's a very perplexing picture, um, and I think we have to be okay with just not knowing and not having all of the answers, uh, you know. But um, yeah, sometimes that doesn't let you sleep at night very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes like to think of it as like strong agnosticism, right? Which is this idea that like anything that is. Any sufficiently strong statement about like the universe or origin stuff like that is probably wrong on some level, right? But it's it's uh, it's like a hard humility, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, I think you know it's interesting for me to like to think about all of this from a psychological level because I think there is a lot of uh, anthropocentrism, you know, and kind of a human narcissism in thinking that. Well, you know, the universe is created for us, and and you know somehow the universe cares. And uh, I mean, I I don't you know take that view. And uh, I think if if you try to take in your mind the vast amount of time from like you know thirteen point four billion years from the Big Bang to the you know infinity that is ahead of us, we will really in the in the big picture. And when I say big picture, I, I mean actually the biggest picture you can ever imagine. We will be just like a speck in time and uh, and space, you know. Uh, and somehow we think, mm, no, but wait, you know, there is some significance that is related to us and to human affairs. But you know, it's I mean, it's it's totally understandable, you know, because we we have this consciousness that allows to come up with all of these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that in many ways is like weird to see agency, right? Yeah, we, we are the, the universe looking at itself as someone saves them uh, once. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, um, before we jump off, I know we're coming towards time. I wanted to just talk about, so you talked a little bit about the findings and some of the, you know, these kind of three main takeaways from the research. What were some, what are some of your recommendations or what do you think are, you know, some of the open questions in research on deconversion that you either you're thinking about exploring or you'd like to see someone kind of else uh, dive into down the line? Um, well, I think there is um, maybe a need to take, uh, you know, a more, a more kind of uh, objective approach, I guess. Uh, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, I think there is a little bit of, of, of bias in terms of uh, how concepts are presented that doesn't give much room to, you know, maybe a, a secular worldview. And, you know, it is not really about, you know, one camp or the other. Uh, I think actually you do, you do have a speaker, uh, Anne Tapes, which, uh, you know, she's going to be really interesting for this because what what I think it would be better is to speak at a, bro- at, a, at a broader level of psychology of worldviews so that you can study, you know, religious worldviews and you can study secular kind of materialistic scientific worldviews. So I think that's an important point, you know, and, and maybe stop relying. I think some people still rely a lot on uh, kind of theological concepts. And even though uh, a multidisciplinary approach is always welcome, I think there is certain rigor that you have to maintain as a social scientist. So, you know, you have to be mindful that some approaches are more or less amenable to that, I guess. But, you know, the, the, the things that I that I found myself were not new, really. I mean, at all, uh, you know, uh, other review, other researchers working on the conversion before have found very similar, you know, findings like uh, Almeyer and, and Hunsberger. They have a they have a lot of work done on this and they have an amazing book called Amazing Apostates and Amazing Believers, I think, something like that, which, you know, they kind of see both sides of the journey and compare people. So I guess we we need to keep amassing more uh, evidence on other religions, you know, and because obviously this is kind of very Western, I guess, but it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in uh, countries where the majority are Muslims or Hindus or have other, or, or Buddhists, you know. Right. Right. Well, it's such an interesting question, such a interesting questions you raised. And I think the stuff, you know, Andrew Tate has written about worldviews, you know, it, for me, it raises the question of, you know, when we deconvert, what worldview are we entering? Because mm-hmm. I think there are a number of kind of organized worldviews one can can kind of move, opt into, right? Whether it's another faith, whether it's like strong atheism, but there does seem to be this kind of middle ground of kind of in some ways disorganized or maybe like, you know, do-it-yourself DIY worldviews where you're kind of like patching things mm-hmm. together and um, without the kind of traditional structures for clarifying or making more coherent of these things. So yeah, I think one thing I'm curious to see in the future is how, yeah, what 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 effect it is to be kind of, you know, on one's own as opposed to Yes. And I and I think that that's very important and very interesting because I think a lot of people are falling more and more within that category, uh, you know, kind of relying on themselves to sort of find their own philosophy of life, which I mean it's great, you know, but um is uh, you know it's 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 not it's not an easy job. You have so much to kind of uh, go through, I guess. Um, and yeah, it, it, you know, it depends how kind of further you want to go into that development. Well, well, Sergio, I think we're we're at time. Uh, but before we jump, uh, you know, people want to find out more about you and your your research. 
more should they look online or yeah um, well, as you mentioned, the, the the paper is in the website from uh, well, from the journal is secularism and non-religion. So it's uh, it's there. It's actually the you know blocked is I think one of the, the most popular of, of the journals. So it, it draw a little bit of interest, and that's what I have so far. I'm, I will try to publish something else this year based on 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 my thesis, which also deals with the topic of religious belief. And, you know, if anyone has any doubts, they can also send me an email and I'll be happy to engage in conversation. Cool. Well, Sergio, thanks again so much for, for taking the time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.